0: Please take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Jeremiah 35. Obedience, prudence, and blessing. Jeremiah 35. Today we find ourselves in a new prophetic context in the book of Jeremiah. We read in Jeremiah chapter 35, verse 1, the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, Now, the text tells us that the prophetic word that we are going to study this evening, and it will be this way for the next several weeks, comes in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Now, let's remember within our historical context exactly what this means. uh, Josiah had three sons of note, called by several names, but uh, best known to us as Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Jehoahaz reigned after the death of Josiah for only three months, after which he was carried into Egypt, never to return. In his place was put Jehoiakim, who reigned for 11 years before being killed by Nebuchadnezzar. For a brief three months after that, the people had made Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, uh, the king before Nebuchadnezzar thought it better to have the son of the man he killed be king over a generally rebellious people. So he deposed Jehoiakim's son Jehoiachin from the throne and placed Josiah's son Zedekiah in his place. Zedekiah reigned for the final 11 years. Now, we have seen prophecies in the days of Zedekiah since at least Jeremiah 31. Recall that Jeremiah 31, 32, 33, uh, 34 were all in the days of Zedekiah, that final king. As a matter of fact, even coming toward the end of that reign. And now we're jumping back in our context once again to the reign in the days of Jehoiakim. Now, we also saw this back in chapter 27, a situation where a prophecy came to Jeremiah in the days of Jehoiakim, but then as we read through that prophecy, it turns out that Jeremiah was giving that prophecy in the days of Zedekiah. And so there's a lot of weird things going on here as far as the chronology is concerned, and nobody uh, has come to a true consensus as to exactly why Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, is structured the way it is. I'd imagine that if we uh, really put our thinkers together hard on this, we could probably probably come up with a a reasonable or rational reason why things are structured the way that they are. However, nobody has um, really, as far as my my reading or my own study, um, found a a, a wholeheartedly satisfactory reason as to why that much be. Perhaps there is a a general theme by which it's structured rather than chronology, or perhaps these uh, these, uh, various... Prophecies came in a general chronology, but were given at different times. Uh, we'll see that a chronology, the chronology brings us back to the days of Jehoiakim here for one reason or another. So do take note of that. Do take note of our context. Do take note of the king within which we are operating. Now, they all, to one degree or another, had problems Uh, right? Jehoiakim had a lot of problems. Zedekiah had a lot of problems. But recall last week, we saw a measure of mercy upon Zedekiah for some good decisions he made. And in a couple of weeks, uh, in particularly chapters 37 and 38, we're going to see a little bit more about Zedekiah and find him to be a man that had some desire to please the Lord. And we'll talk about that, of course, when we get there in those chapters. So here we are in the days of Jehoiakim, and uh, we read the, thus in verse 2. Uh, God speaking to Jeremiah, he says, Go into the house of the Rechabites, and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So Jeremiah is called to go to the house uh, uh, of what's called the house of the Rechabites. And then to speak to them. He's supposed to invite them into the temple. He's supposed to invite them into one of the chambers of the temple. And he's supposed to offer them wine to drink. A very interesting set of commands from the Lord. Go find this, this family group, invite them to the temple, give them wine to drink. Let's see how it plays out. Verses 3 through 11. Then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the house of Hanan, the son of uh, Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Maasaiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups, and I said unto them, Drink ye wine. But they said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons, forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he hath charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters. Nor build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. But we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed, and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land, that we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem, for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, and for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwell at Jerusalem. So we see several men of the house of the Rechabites who come at Jeremiah's bidding. They are led by a man named Jaazaniah, said to be the son of Jeremiah, the son of Hebazaniah. And with him came his brethren, his sons, and the Bible says the whole house of the Rechabites. Jeremiah brings them into the house of the Lord, as he's told. He brings them into the chamber of, of, of the house of the uh, chamber of, of those who were friendly to Jeremiah and such and sets before them pots of wine, gives them cups and says, drink the wine. And the Rechabites refuse this offer. And they say that they will drink no wine. And, and in doing so, they appeal to their history that Jonadab, who was the son of Rechab, their father, many years prior, had given the family a set of commands. Don't drink wine, don't build houses, and don't have land, sow seed, or have vineyards. So don't establish themselves in that manner in the land. And the reason that he gives is at the end of verse 7. He says that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Now, at this point it behooves us to understand a little bit more about who these Rechabites were before we continue through the context. We find from 1 Chronicles chapter 2 verse 25 that the house of Rechab were from a group of people called the Kenites. First Chronicles 22, verse 55, uh, two for verse 55 says this, And the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabaz the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, the Sukathites, these are the Kenites that came uh, of Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. So the Rechabites are connected to a group of Kenites and specifically those located in Hamath. Now, the Kenites were not natural-born Israelites. They were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, called Jethro or Hobab, who came with Israel into the Promised Land. There are any number of passages that reflect the history of the Kenites, but we find them among the children of Israel, at least in Judges chapter 1, verse 16, which says this, And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad, and they went and dwelt among the people. Now, we find from the scriptures this, that though the Kenites joined Israel in the land, they never actually settled in the land. They didn't build houses. They didn't buy land. They didn't cultivate the land. And this request was not intended to keep distance between the Kenites and the children of Israel, or the Kenites and the God of Israel, but rather, as we see according to Jeremiah 35, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave these commands with the intent that by doing so, the house of Rechab would live many days in the land wherein they were strangers. So they lived a nomadic life. In the days of Saul, what we find is that they were dwelling primarily with the Amalekites. So that when Saul went in to destroy the Amalekites, he actually told the Kenites to separate themselves from the Amalekites before Israel went in so that the Kenites would not be destroyed with them. And all of this going back to when Moses invited the Kenites to be a part of the inheritance in the days of his father-in-law, Jethro. We also find that in those days, there was at least one man, one family group of the Kenites who were not among the Amalekites, who were not dwelling in tents among among the Amalekites, rather a man who had broken off from the rest of the clan of the Kenites and who lived instead in the inheritance of Naphtali. His name was Heber, according to Judges 4. In Judges 4, the Bible tells us that he had broken off from the other Kenites and he lived in the plains of Zaanim near Kadesh. Heber's wife was a woman named Jael. And that name might, might ring a bell. If you're interested in the history of this particular Kenite and his wife Jael, the impact that they had on the land of Israel, you can read about that in the conflict, uh, including Barak and Deborah in Judges chapter four. Now it's very possible, perhaps even likely, That the house of Rechab came from those Naphtali Kenites, not from the main bulk of the Kenites, but perhaps from Heber and these Naphtali Kenites that separated from the rest. And the reason why I say that is because in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 55, which we just read a moment ago, the Bible told us that the house of Rechab came from the Kenites in Hamath. And if you look on a map of where Hamath was, it is a city in Naphtali. It would be not. It would be a ways from Kadesh, where Heber was. However, it would be within that region, most likely on the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. To that end, it is quite possible that the Rechabites came from the the same group that had separated themselves from the other Kenites and had lived in that area with Heber and his wife Jael. And this people seemed to have obeyed their forefathers quite well. They had dwelled in tents, they owned no land, they obeyed the voice of Jonadab, they did not drink wine, um the the son of Rechab, they'd obeyed his voice, and at the present time they had they were living in houses, perhaps for the first time ever, because they had fled from their tents into the city of Jerusalem, where they were living within the walls in order to be protected from the Chaldeans for this particular time. To this end, uh, they were, though they were living in houses, they were still uh, seeking to obey the spirit of their father's commands. They were only living there by nature of the crisis at hand, and they weren't just throwing everything out because of their particular circumstances. So Jeremiah places this wine before them and they directly refuse the bidding of the prophet to drink the wine because they will not disobey the commands of their father from years ago, Jonadab and Rechab. And this instance thus becomes an illustration that God is going to use to teach a lesson to Israel. And that illustration, that lesson begins as we continue in verse 12, the Bible says this: Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, <clears throat> Excuse me. Will ye not receive instruction to hearken to my word, saith the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed. For unto this day they drink none but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye hearkened not. Unto me. I have sent also unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Return ye now every man from his evil way and amend your doings, and go not after other gods to serve them. And ye shall dwell in the land which I have given you and to your fathers, but ye have not inclined your ear nor hearkened unto me. So God asked the house of Judah, Why won't you listen to me? Here are these, th- this family, the sons of Rechab. All of these generations later, they still refuse to drink wine on the basis of their determination to live a long life in the land at the behest of their father. Why can't you, Judah, obey me? If that one contingency of Kenites can obey so well, simply their, their mortal great-great-grandfather, however long it was ago, and they're still carrying on that, those requests, why can't you obey me when I am your God? Why can't you obey me when I have actively sent prophet after prophet after prophet to remind you of me? But you've not listened. So God calls for them to learn from this example, to repent of their ways, to turn unto him. It's another means by which. Now remember, this is well before God had settled the, the utmost captivity remember there were three captivities 605, 597, 586 BC 605 being the earliest right because we're in BC not AD and only one of those to this, po- to this point had taken place so there was still a great amount of potential in the land that the land would not have to be overthrown we're not like in the days in Jeremiah 31, 32, 33 when the siege is right at the door right? We're, we're, we're well before that now. We're in a time of, of, of relative safety, of relative peace. Uh, the, yes, the, the Chaldeans have come. They've, they've caused some problems, but um, we're, not, we're not there yet, right? So remember that context. Remember that this is, this is the Lord reaching out His hand, wanting to divert from them the, the, the deeper elements of the destruction that we know will surely come. So we know the end of this. We know they're not going to listen, right? But we can, and that's why we're doing this. They would not listen. God continues in verses 16 and 17. Because the sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their fathers, which he commanded them, but this people hath not hearkened unto me. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring upon Judah and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken unto them But they have not heard. I have called unto them, but they have not answered. We find in this contrast once again the decree of the Lord to the nation that they will be judged. He says, because it's so obvious that that obedience is possible. Look, just look at the Rechabs, the, the the family of the Rechabites, and you haven't done it. You will be judged. God says, I've reached out to you. You've not answered, and this has always been God's way. He reaches out to man. Those who answer are given mercy. Those who reject are allowed to continue in their judgment. Now we conclude our exposition. It's a fairly short chapter. We conclude our exposition with God giving a direct message to the Rechabites. So he has given this message to Judah. Now he turns his attention back to this uh, family, the house of Rechab. And he says this in verses 18 and 19. Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according unto all that he hath commanded you, therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not want a man to stand before me forever. God confers a very special blessing upon the house of Rechab here, that because they have honored their father Jonadab, Because they have obeyed his precepts, therefore God will bless this family with the privilege, he says, of always having a man from that family stand before God. Now, at the very least, we all stand before God, right? Every man stands before God uh, in, in that sense and indicates that the family of Rechab would be a perpetual family so that to this day we would understand there's still to be a descendant of Rechab upon the earth. But it's also very possible that it's a spiritual promise. It's also very possible that the idea of standing before the Lord in the same way that God promised this to David, that they would not want a man to to stand before him or to the line of Zadok, the priestly line, that they would not want a man to stand before the Lord. In that same way, it's very possible here that God is not just making a promise that there would be a continual line of Rechab, but that there is a understanding, a promise here that due to the faithfulness of this line, that a perpetual remnant would last upon this earth who love and serve God, that there would always be a member of the house of Rechab named among the remnant. This too is possible. As a special blessing from the Lord for faithfulness and obedience of the house to that first commandment with promise that they would honor their father and their mother. So we see this very unique and this special promise given to the house of Rechab, which uh, draws upon a deeper principle, which we all understand well of honoring our father and mother. We'll address that in just a moment. But as we talk through this, I'd like to, to draw our minds into application this evening. And I'm going to go in three directions with our application. Point number one, in your liberty, hold this world loosely. Now, uh, this morning, we just finished our law mini series, as it were, and we did so. And as we did so, we were studying the liberties that we have in Christ, the freedom and the responsibility of Christ. I'd like to, in one way or in a manner of speaking, carry this concept over somewhat into this application because as we look at the Rechabites, um, what they are what they have done for generations is very, very similar in a, a very applicable, if I can use the word, uh, to what we have talked about as it relates to this law series. The Rechabites were a part of this group of Kenites. The Kenites were a nomadic people who were invited by Moses himself to be integrated into the nation of Israel, to share its blessings, to share its inheritance. And the Kenite people did go with Israel, as we have said, but they, and particularly this part, this element of the family of Rechab, made a conscious decision not to settle in the land not to build houses, not to own land, not to cultivate land. They still labored, naturally. Maybe uh, they labored on other people's lands. Maybe they labored in trade. Uh, maybe they had skills such as smithing and carpentry and whatnot. Um, that, they, that they did as a nomadic people group. Maybe uh, they w- traveled from, from, from city to city with wares, uh, trading and bartering in the city and, and making uh, their living that way. But one way or another, they didn't want to settle in the land. And the reason Jonadab gave, which has always been interesting as we've talked through it to me, is the desire that they might live many days in the land. Interesting don't settle in the land so that you can spend a long time in the land. Almost seems like a paradox, doesn't it? It almost seems a little strange that you would say, don't settle so that you might remain. But I wonder if Jonadab perhaps had a unique insight here into human nature that drew him to ask something of his family, understanding just how prone humans are to get comfortable. The things of this world, even things which are fine, even things which are within our liberty as we talked about this morning, things which God has specifically given in this instance to bless Israel, right? God said, I'm going to give you vineyards. I'm going to give you fields. I'm going to give you walled cities. I'm going to drive these people out. Everything will be built for you already. You just get to inhabit it. Settled houses, fruitful land, prosperity, health. These all have a tendency to soften devotion, don't they? maybe even darken our perception of the things of the world to come by distracting us from those things with these things. We have a tendency to wander, and we have a tendency, the more we gain, to turn our eyes from the things above to the things of this earth. And I wonder if Jonadab didn't have some unique insight into that and have a particular sensibility within his heart that said, the best way that we can live distinctly for the Lord might very well be to not get too comfortable in this world, to not get too comfortable even in this land. We're called all throughout the word of God to hold this world loosely. And those who have been found to be most effective for the kingdom of God are those who have succeeded well in this regard, whether they have been poor or rich, whether they have had much or little of this world's goods, those who have been successful in being distinctive for the Lord are those who have held this world loosely. Jesus would emphasize this very thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse 19. I love this passage of scripture. Jesus says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, focused, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, if it darts back and forth, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. This world in which we live was given to us by God to enjoy, in all purity and in all holiness. Indeed, the entire book of Ecclesiastes exists to reflect to us the reality that the things in this world, take note, not the things of this world, we'll talk about that more in the coming points, but the things in this world exist for us to enjoy in God. But Jesus gave a careful warning in Matthew 6, and I know I read a long passage there, that to lay up treasure on this earth will inevitably draw our hearts to the things of this earth because where our treasure is there our heart is also and we need to think about that we need to understand that we, are, we live in a very affluent country as a matter of fact even even those who fundamentally lack as it relates to this country who are on the lower end of the spectrum as it relates to goods in this country have significantly more than some kings in just a few centuries ago. The amazing um, technological improvements of our day have given us, even among the lowest of the low, the, the basic fundamentals of life in this country, we have significantly more than what kings could enjoy not too long ago. This is astounding. But along with that material luxury comes a danger that we can begin to love this world, that we can begin to lay up our treasure in the things of this earth, which are so very accessible to us, particularly in the United States of America. And where our treasure is is where our heart goes. So Jesus warns that it is impossible to serve two masters simultaneously. There will invariably come a point when the request of one master diverges from the request of the other master. And at that point, you can only serve one. You have to make a choice. Which one are you going to serve? The one you obey is the one you're serving. The eternal things of the Spirit exist in strong contrast to the temporal things of this world. And for we who live in this world and in the Spirit, for we who are in this world but not of this world, as John said in 1 John, we studied this morning, we are not of this world. For we who are in that place, there are inevitable moments of conflict between the material and the spiritual. When these things, the things of the world and the things of the spirit, when they come into conflict, you'll know whether or not you're holding this world loosely or whether you aren't holding this world loosely or whether your, your, your heart has followed treasure into the wrong master. When my heart must rest with either God of this world, uh, with, with the God of this world or the God of, of the world that is to come, Where will your heart go? To that end, Jesus exhorts us unto contentment and faith, to take no thought for the elements of this life, trusting instead that the physical things of the world are in and under God's control, and that if I succeed in keeping my heart upon the things of the world to come, that God is able to add unto me those physical things that I need. Jesus tells us here that it is a worldly worry. It is a worldly worry to rest great concern, the the concerns of our heart and mind on material things. He says the Gentiles seek those things. They are the ones, the, the the world around us, they are the ones that devote their resources into laying up treasure on this earth. Treasure which will inevitably corrupt, decay, and eventually burn in judgment. Now again, that doesn't mean you can't have these things. But is your heart on these things? Is this where your worry lies? Is this where your concern lies? Is this where your mind lies? Is this where your emotional capital is spent? If you find yourself day in and day out exhausted in worry over your material condition, exhausted in worry over the things of this life, you need to start to rethink your spiritual position and where your heart lies. If you spend all of your priority trying to build up the things on this earth to where you you exhaust yourself, you need to rethink some things about your, your priorities in life because we are called to hold this world loosely and we are promised by the true and living God that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness that all of those things that are necessary, not necessarily the luxuries, doesn't mean you're going to have boats in your yard and whatnot, all of the things that are needful will be added unto us. The followers of the true and the living God devote their time and energy to laying up treasure in heaven where the reward's will not and cannot corrupt. They will not decay. Those things which will pass through judgment and, e- and endure for eternity. Do you have that mindset this evening? It's so easy to get caught up in material things. Money and houses and cars and clothing, stuff. It's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to allow our hearts to rest upon these things, to allow them to draw us into worry and anxiety to command time that ought otherwise to be spent focused on the Lord, on His kingdom. Now again, these things aren't in and of themselves wrong. It isn't wrong to have money. It isn't wrong to enjoy the virtuous pleasures of this life. It's our right in Christ to walk in this liberty as we considered this morning. But the moment it draws your heart away from faith, The moment our eyes turn from the eternal to the temporal, the moment we begin to cling to this world in any uh, um, substantive way, we've drifted. We've drifted into a form of idolatry, falling short of the faith unto which we have been called. I love how Paul describes this in Philippians 3. You're perhaps familiar with Philippians 3. The, The passion of Paul here, well known, But I'd like us to read it together. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, But what things were gained to me, as he had just gone through a list of his material gains before Christ, But what things were gained to me, those things I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, he says, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. For Paul, everything was on the table. There was no accomplishment, there was no accolade, there was no material gain that meant anything compared to the realities of the, the promises of the world to come. Paul says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. It doesn't matter. Paul says, as pertaining to the law, I was blameless. It doesn't matter. Paul says, I had the opportunity for tremendous honor, for tremendous physical wealth, for tremendous opportunity in the land of my kindred. It doesn't matter. None of that matters as much as Christ matters. None of the things on this earth are worth anything if it takes one bit of reward from the heaven that is to come, from the world that is to come. Paul says, if I can only know Christ better. He has this personal determination in Christ to count anything and everything, material and temporal, as nothing, as a total loss, if he might in some way gain a deeper knowledge of Christ. If he could know Christ better through suffering, then his body can just suffer. If he can know Christ better through pain, then his body can know pain. If he can know Christ better by lacking the things materially on, on this earth, then he'll experience physical lack. If only he might know Christ better. Now, this was not always Paul's experience. Paul goes on in Philippians 4 to describe his capacity both to abound and to suffer need. Right? He says, there's times where I've had have everything I need. And the Philippian church was actually a big part of that because they had sent time and again to his need. He says, there are times that I have all and abound, and there are times that I suffer need. He says, both are okay. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. It's fine. Have a bunch, don't have a bunch, as long as I can know Christ. Have, what, ha- ha- have everything, don't have everything, as long as the kingdom is furthered. Those things, those things that make us comfortable, those things that are the blessings of the Lord, those things that God has given us in Christ, they're our right to enjoy in purity and in virtue. But when they become our heart, when they begin to command your priorities, when they begin to sap from you emotional resources, when they Take a tremendous amount of physical resources, taking it away from the physical resources that you could be spending on the Lord. When when the things of this life begin to strip from us our, that glimmer of, of, of hope in that which is to come, we need to rethink our priorities. How are you doing? How are your priorities? Has some of this, crept into your heart. See, the Rechabites lived in tents. They owned no land. They cultivated no land. They built no houses. Throughout the many hundreds of years between when they entered the land and this time, which would be somewhere around eight to 900 years, they didn't have their houses burned by any enemy because they didn't have houses. They didn't have their hand, their, their, their land taken and cultivated by the enemy because they didn't have land to take. There's something nice about that isn't there. Something that perhaps allowed them to maintain an edge, a, a reminder that this world was not their home. Our church has been renting this building now for a little over nine years. Nine years this month was our anniversary, nine, nine year anniversary in June, uh, began in June of 2010 here. And while there's some difficulties that come with renting a building, some inflexibility that comes with renting a building, uh, some things that might be nice to have if we had our own, there's also something nice about the thought, isn't there? That if tomorrow there were to be some great decree that now what we do is illegal, And and the IRS began confiscating all of the church's buildings and selling off their assets. We could all pick up, move somewhere else, set up a bunch of chairs, and continue right along as we have. We don't have a lot of investment in a building. There's not a lot in here of, of earthly goods that is our own. There's not a lot of investment in this that we can lose. If we were to, God forbid, come next week this ho- and, 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 and this house of worship was burned to a crisp, we could step up, move our church over somewhere else, and just pick up where we left off. Because we're not invested in the things of this life as a church. We're not invested in a building. We're not invested, which means our our business meetings are not filled with fighting over carpet colors and whatever else, right? Because we are not invested in a building. There is a blessing there and many churches have seen this today and many churches have been content to just find a place to meet nowadays for that very reason. Because with the things of the material come the concerns of the material. And how easy is it for our mind to be diverted from the spiritual onto the material as we invest? Now, I'm not making a case here for us not ever owning a building. That's not what I'm attempting to do here. But what I'm saying is there's a thought process to what Jonadab commanded to them, always live in tents, that keeps us holding this world loosely, doesn't it? That kept them holding this world loosely, perhaps. Does something need realignment as it relates to you and how you're holding this world? Point number two, in your liberty, hold on to wisdom. Hold, don't hold on to this world tightly. You can, let the, you, know, you, can, you can leave that world loosely in your fingers, but hold on to wisdom. Hold on to wisdom. The only people in the land who were strictly commanded to drink no wine at that time were the priests, and that only when they were to minister in the tabernacle of the congregation. There was also the Nazarite, who, when he was under a temporary vow unto the Lord, having consecrated himself to God for a time, was called to drink no wine nor strong drink. He was also called not to have sexual intimacy, not to cut his hair, various other things as well that he was called not to do. And that was because he was wholly consecrated for the Lord during the time that he was under this Nazarite vow. There was only one man who was asked to take a lifelong Nazarite vow, right? And that was Samson. Yet though it was in their liberty... The Rechabite family held on to a manner of wisdom that we see reflected in the Proverbs. So they were called by their father not to dwell in tents. They were called not to cultivate land, not to have vineyards. I mean, to dwell in tents, excuse me. I think I said not to. To dwell in tents, not to cultivate land, not to have vineyards, all of that. And then they were called by their fathers to not drink any wine. The warnings of wisdom in regard to alcohol in Scripture are well known and extremely strong. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Those under the influence of alcohol become a mockery of a man. They profane themselves. They abuse themselves. They operate outside of sensibility, outside of reason, outside of rationale. And they who allow themselves to be deceived by its promises of pleasures are fools. Fools the scriptures say. And so we see this warning about wine being a mocker, about how it degrades men and women and how they'll do contemptuous things when under its influence. Proverbs 33 speaks of it as well. Verses 29 to 35. Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes. We see this list of things, woe and sorrow, right? Who, uh, whose life tends to have a lot of problems. Contentions, arguments, problems one with another. Babbling, incoherent babbling, the idea of being incoherent. Wounds without a cause, falling down, scraping yourself up, not feeling it, not realizing you've done it. Redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eye shall behold strange women. Thine heart shall utter perverse things. It brings a man and, and it degrades him and it causes him to lose his inhibitions. Or a woman and it causes them to lose their inhibitions and to be willing to do things. It makes them suggestible, willing to do things that they would not otherwise do, to shame themselves in ways that they would not, not otherwise shame themselves, to reduce their own dignity, to, 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 to drag their, their own dignity through the mud in a way that they never other would, to speak perverse things that they would never under their own control speak. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth on the top of a mast. Right? The idea of one who is in the sea and the boat is rocking back and forth. And if you try to walk straight on a boat that's walking back and forth, you'll do one of these things as it tips back and forth, right? Because the boat is rocking and you're rocking with it and you're tipping back and forth as the boat is listening from one side to the other. And if you've ever seen someone heavily inebriated, you maybe have seen that before. They have stricken me, shalt thou say. This would be the inebriated, the, uh, the, the, the drunk person and I was not sick. They have beaten me and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Woe, sorrow, contention, babbling, sexual impurity, perversion of speech, belying a man's dignity taking away his physical command over his own body, wounds that he himself doesn't feel at the time, degrading himself and he doesn't know it, suffering physical consequences well after the effects of the drug in and of themselves have worn off, and yet for all of that misery, some of a lot of which he doesn't even remember, he will seek it again and again and again, and he'll go back and he'll go back and he'll go back and he'll degrade himself again and again and again. One more proverb. Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Lemuel's mother... Lemuel, being a king, understood the danger of those who are in positions of leadership falling under the influence of alcohol. That those who make, must make righteous judgment, those who must have their wits about them in order that they don't pervert judgment, those who must be able to think clearly in order that they can lead others in the way that they should go, should not fall under the influence of drugs or alcohol, should not allow their mind to be clouded by these things, thus impairing their judgment. She says to the rather, give drugs to those who are ready to die, those who are in great pain. Drugs, alcohol, uh, the, the alcohol is, is a, a drug entering your body. That's the idea here. And we, are, we, we can rightly broaden this concept to mind-altering drugs. Give those things to those who are in in great pain and in need of relief as they are dying. Give those to those who are emotional, physical, uh, in great emotional or physical need to, to forget their misery. Those who are in need of having emotional or physical problems that are in need of medical intervention. But those who need their mind who need their dignity, who need control. It's not for them to be under the influence of alcohol. We don't know why Jonadab called for his children not to drink, save for the exclusive condition as a part of the whole that that they would dwell long in the land. It seems unlikely that it would be simply for consecration because he didn't exhort them to avoid the other acts of uncleanness, He exhorted them not to drink the alcohol, but he didn't exhort them to any of the other elements of the Nazarite vow, to not cut their hair or to not not reproduce or anything of the sort. It seems far more likely that though the law did not forbid alcohol, and of course they were Kenites, Rechab understood that this liberty must be subservient to wisdom. And so should we. You all know, you've heard my messages on this. I personally cannot stand up here behind the pulpit in good conscience and tell you that the explicit entrance of a drug or alcohol into your system is explicitly and invariably sinful. I cannot find the scriptures to bear out such a dogmatic claim. I know many do I don't fault them for it or I don't I don't uh, look down on them for it or anything of the sort many make the argument about us being a kingdom of priests as believers and because we are a part of this kingdom priesthood and the priests were called in the Old Testament not to drink that we ought not drink in that same principle Many seek to mitigate the fact that Jesus interacted with wine during his life by calling it unfermented wine or what we would effectively call grape juice. I personally find these arguments uncompelling. I find them biblically weak. That is my personal opinion on that. I do not think that those arguments hold much interpretive consistency, interpretive strength or um, interpretive validity. But I can tell you this absolutely and unequivocally. That the moment any drug enters your system, it alters your state of consciousness, overriding your judgment, impairing the ability of the Holy Spirit of God to dominate and to influence your thinking and decisions with the obvious notable exceptions of when it's needed medically, right? (laughs) You have surgery. They give you something for the pain. You're going to be without your senses for a little while. That's natural and understandable, right? Those whose minds and their bodies are damaged who need medical intervention, we're we're not speaking in that sphere. But for a person who is otherwise entirely functional to thus infuse into his body drugs or alcohol something that will override his conscious decision-making process and reduce or incapacitate the ability of the Spirit of God to lead him, to guide him, to, 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 to allow him to make decisions, At that point, it is sin. Not just to me, but to you. Ephesians 5.18 teaches this lesson explicitly. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We've explained this before. There's this contrast here, right? Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The idea there, don't allow something to override the capacity of the Spirit of God to fill and to direct you. And at the moment that a Uh, that something that I put into my body is overriding my, my thought process is overriding the capacity of my mind to communicate with my spirit and thus for the spirit of God to be able to function properly through me I have stepped outside of liberty and I have stepped into sin and this doesn't again just apply to alcohol Any drug that would enter the body and alter the mental state falls under this principle. From alcohol to marijuana to prescription medications to hard drugs, there's a spiritual incapacity to be led of the spirit when under the influence of mind-altering drugs to that extent. And if you've ever interacted with people who have a drug problem or, or a drinking problem, and if you ever hear how they describe themselves when they're under the influence of some drug, they'll talk about how the drugs, they'll talk about the drugs as if the drugs were, were a, a third party in the interaction. The, under the influence, the drugs made me do this. The drugs made me do that. I never would have done that, but I did it while I was under this, the influence of this drug. Or they'll say it was the alcohol that was saying that. It was the alcohol that was doing that. They understand that it's their body that's doing, performing the action, but they don't feel as though they are actually under control, as if there is something that is overriding their normal decision making process. And this is how they describe it. I can't speak to that personally, but I've sat across from an awful lot of drug addicts and alcoholics in the last five years. And this is how they describe it whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Outside of the spirit, I can do nothing. When at once I am under the influence of mind-altering chemicals, I am unable to maintain that proper condition. The Rechabites held this world loosely. They did not build houses or buy lands. Oh, and by the way, as it relates to those things, we talk about this idea, they held on to wisdom. You read those Proverbs. You read what the Proverbs say about mind-altering drugs. You understand that there are some people that can purge a certain amount of drugs into their body without it overriding their capacity to make decisions. And again, we're not talking medically here. We're not talking about that film. We're talking about people who are perfectly functional, who are volitionally stepping into this recreationally, as it were. And the old adage, which is so wise, is this. If it never enters your body you'll never have a problem. How much is too much? Well, here's the thing. If, if, if the drug never enters your body, then, then you never have to worry about it. At what point do you become addicted? Well, here's the thing. If you never try, you'll never become addicted. Simply put, you never put alcohol into your body, you'll never become addicted to it. I can guarantee that. You never put an illicit drug into your body, you're never going to become addicted to it. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Hold on to that. The Rechabites held on to this world loosely. They did not build houses. They did not buy lands. The Rechabites held on to wisdom tightly. They refused the danger that wine could introduce to their posterity and their lineage. These together formed the basis of Jonadab's conviction that in doing so, the family would live long in the land in which they were strangers. But Jonadab perhaps did not anticipate this last little bit that for all the blessings of those primary determinations unto which he exhorted his family, the blessings of them holding this world loosely, the blessings of them not drinking wine, it would not necessarily be those actions themselves that would cause the greatest blessing to his family. Maybe he did anticipate this on, on the basis of the Ten Commandments. But it would be that simple act of obedience itself that would bring about the greatest honor and the greatest blessing. Rooted in God's covenant to the nation was an enduring principle. The fifth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Paul tells us specifically that this first commandment is given in the word of God with a direct blessing invoked. God told the nation that if they honored their father and mother, that their days would be long upon the land which the Lord gave them, that their days may be long upon the land which the Lord their God gave them. We see a a reiteration of this command almost verbatim to the church in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. This command... Comes naturally after the command to obey your parents in chapter six, verse one. We spoke not long ago in a message to young people during our family series on the distinction that we might draw between obedience and honor, recognizing that um, one subset of a command gives way to personal autonomy. In other words, the command to explicitly obey your parents does seem to have a statue of limitations, that being marriage when you leave your father and mother and cleave unto your wife and you two become one flesh and then at that point you become an autonomous family and now the man has authority over his family in the Lord. And yet we also see this second element honor your father and mother. And this one we don't see a statue of limitations unto in this life. And the question as to what these verses mean has always been a little bit ambiguous. It's hard to say it means that every person who honors their parents will enjoy long life because of their parents' practical care and wisdom for them. The idea of this all just being practical wisdom, that if you honor your parents, then uh, when your parents say, stay away from the road, you'll stay away from the road. And when your parents say, don't touch that knife, you won't touch that knife. And so you'll live longer, which you will, um, per, per chance, possibly, But, you know, some parents aren't good, and they call their children unto recklessness. Other parents don't care much about their children at all. And so to obey your parents when your parents are calling you to do reckless things, which I would imagine none of the children in this room have experienced, but um, I tell you, when I sit across from those people in the jail, a lot of them have experienced that. Their parents being the ones who actually got them addicted to drugs. Their parents being the ones who actually got them addicted to alcohol. Their parents being the ones who actually introduced them to sexual perversions. And so we find that this principle breaks down in certain circumstances. It's hard to say that it means that every person who honors their parents will be blessed with long life because any number of good and honest men have died young and any number of evil men have lived a long time. And there's a controversy surrounding even just what God's promise to the Rechabites entails, as we mentioned already. A question as to whether or not the reality that the family would never want, meaning lack, that the family would never lack a man to stand before God means uh, that the family would persist throughout history or means more specifically that there would be a faithful remnant that would always contain a member of their family. But whichever way we slice it, this enduring legacy... This promise of familial longevity, and more specifically the blessing of watching multiple generations of one's family walk in faithfulness unto the Lord. This is what we see here. We see a family that for 900 years honored their patriarchs, but for 900 years honored the Lord. We see a family that lived generation to generation generation, multi-generational obedience. From Jeremiah 35, it appears to be the essence of the promise. Each man still has a free will, to be sure. But there is a spiritual bre- blessing upon the posterity of a man who has chosen to honor his father and his mother. And this we know, though all of the ins and outs of what exactly this means might be up for debate. What should never be up for debate among we who walk by faith is that whatever the the true nitty-gritty of that promise is, whether it's that idea of spiritual faithfulness passing down from generation to generation, or maybe even among the unbeliever who honors his parents, a a greater likelihood that the the continuing generations will find the Lord, whether it simply be familial longevity from generation to generation, whatever it might be, this we know, we want this promise. We want this blessing. That should never be up for debate. To this end, both young and old alike, it's incumbent upon you to honor your parents throughout your life. This does not always mean you'll agree with them. This does not always mean that you'll take their advice and obey their commands when you are not biblically obligated to do so. But it does mean that you will hold them in a position of respect it does mean that how you speak to them, how you speak of them, honoring their, the spirit uh, of, of their desires, how you treat them, even in their memory after their death, that it matters. That you, you hold their advice as something worth considering, that you reflect love unto them. You honor them. And so in your liberty, you hold this world loosely. In this world, you hold wisdom tightly. In this world, you hold fast to sound doctrine, as the Rechabites did. They lived in tents because they held this world loosely. They avoided wine because they held on to wisdom. They honored their father because they understood doctrine. How are you doing today? Are you holding this world loosely or have the pleasures of sin encroached? How are you doing today? Have you understood your liberty but also understood wisdom? And are you holding fast to wisdom? You know, there's, there's, there's several ways to learn any lesson God forbid that you'd have to learn all of the lessons of the book of Proverbs by making the mistakes. The book of Proverbs is there to help us avoid those entanglements, to help us avoid those snares, to keep us from making those mistakes ourselves. If only you have the faith to say, even though there's an allure there, even though the world is calling to, that, to me, even though I feel like uh, by the world standard there might be something out I'm missing on, that's okay because wisdom dictates that I don't go there. And third, are you holding fast to to sound doctrine? Honor your father and mother, the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, that thou may live long in the land which the Lord thy God has given thee. Regardless of where you fall in interpreting that promise, you want it. You want it. Are you living it? We spoke earlier of enjoying the things in the world while rejecting the things of the world. John writes this in first John two verses fifteen and sixteen. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Does this describe you today? Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Are you holding on to wisdom? Are you living wisely? Have you been flirting with lines of sin in your amusements, in your associations, in your friendships, in your thoughts and desires? Would you draw yourself back from that edge in wisdom? Would you read the Proverbs and learn wisdom? Would you have the wisdom to be willing to receive the instruction and to learn rather than having to make all of those mistakes for yourself? And finally, are you obeying God's word? Are you honoring your parents? Can you see the promise on the horizon with eyes of faith? Can you understand just how much you want those promises? How much you need to want those promises? How much sound doctrine ought to matter to you? How much the right relationship that you can have with God through obedience is something that you want? Unbelieving parents, you can still honor them. Controlling parents, you can still honor them. Uh, Frustrating parents, you can still honor them. Disagree with your parents, you can still honor them. And in doing so, you will be purchasing to yourself a blessing, which is and must be eternal, and which will not and must not fade away. You want that promise. I want that promise. Are you holding fast to sound doctrine?